Jesus, we thank you for the gift of another Sunday to gather, to hear your word preached. We know that each and every time that we hear the word of God proclaimed, that your Holy Spirit is doing a work inside our hearts to illuminate our souls so that we might see something of the glory of God, might understand something we didn't before. And Jesus, we ask this morning that you would, through your spirit, do that very work so that most of all, we could see your beauty and long to see you face to face. Help us with eyes of faith to gaze upon you this morning, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. The trees were a deeper green than I imagined, and so tall. I never thought of them as much more than obstacles to be avoided. The way they stood in stark contrast to the white snow was so incredibly vivid. Above the trees were the distant cliffs, and higher still, the blue sky with not a cloud in it. It all took my breath away. Uh, those are the words of a man by the name of Michael May. What's remarkable about them is Michael May, for 43 years, could not see. And then one day, his sight was restored. See, as a three-year-old, he had had a horrible accident, a chemical explosion that had robbed him of the ability to see from his physical eyes. And he had adapted well to life as a blind person. He even was a part of uh, special, the, the Special Olympics, being able to, uh, held records for downhill skiing, fastest downhill time for a blind person. And yet one day, and seemingly by random, he bumped into a doctor who thought he knew a way that Michael's sight could be restored. It was bleeding edge technology, uh, using adult stem cells to restore the part of his eye that had been destroyed in that explosion. Michael thought it was worth a try, so he underwent the experimental procedure. And then the day came in 1999, about three months after his surgery. His bandages were taken off, and suddenly his world was filled with light and shapes and colors. And then he saw the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen, the face of his dear wife. You know what his first words were after seeing his wife? He said, oh, I always knew you were beautiful. That's the right answer, man. <laughs> it's a remarkable thing that technology can allow a blind man to see, at least in some very rare cases. We live in a day when that is possible. And yet, as remarkable as it is to be able to restore physical sight, our text this morning shows us that Jesus can do something that is far greater. That is to restore the sight of our very souls, to open the eyes of our heart, so we can see something better than blue skies and green trees, and yes, even beautiful spouses, so that we might be able to truly see the glory of God. Uh, this morning, we'll see in this text with two very vivid hues, a contrast to teach one lesson that a soul can only see through faith in Jesus Christ. 
A soul can only see through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, We'll see that in two sections this morning. Give them to you up front. First, in 31 through 34, we'll see disciples with darkened vision. Disciples with darkened vision. And then 35 through 43, we'll see, ironically enough, a blind man that can see. And all this, I hope that you will put your faith in Jesus Christ to open the eyes of your heart to see the glory of God by faith. Let's begin in that first section, verses 31 through 34. Disciples with darkened vision. Uh, we've reached a, a, one of those joints in Luke's gospel. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have been in a section stretching all the way back to chapter 9, uh, what's often called the journey section of Luke's gospel. Uh, There's been this mission that Jesus has been on. He has set his face to get to Jerusalem. And since that point, everything has been drawing him step by step closer to that mission being accomplished. And along the way, we've been uh, watching along and learning from a series of encounters along the road with Jesus and his disciples as he reveals little by little who he is, what the kingdom of God is like, and what they will need to be ready for on the moment that's coming when Jesus will be taken from them. Well, we've reached a point which is the end of that road journey. Uh, This is uh, a section that runs from our text this morning all the way through chapter 19 that sets up the final set of things that are gonna happen and sees Jesus draw within just one day's journey of Jerusalem, which means the wait isn't much longer. All the things that he's been predicting that are gonna happen are just over the horizon. It's like you can see the glow of the glory of that moment coming just off in the distance, even though it's not quite here yet. But Jesus takes this moment to try and prepare his disciples by for a third time telling them very specifically what it is that's going to happen. He does so by reiterating again his mission and what it means for them. Verse 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Uh, Jesus reminds them that they were always coming to Jerusalem. It always had to be that glorious city. Uh, This is not happenstance. Jesus' entire life was not just a set of random events. No, all of this had been predicted long ago because Jesus is sent from heaven with a mission from heaven. Uh, He is the son of man. Undoubtedly, Jesus uh, intended for us to hear echoes of Daniel 9 where that figure, the Son of Man, comes before the Ancient of Days and receives from him the right to rule over an eternal kingdom. Uh, Jesus says, this is why he's here. It is a mission, one that he must accomplish. Now, up to this point, I think the disciples likely were amening along with Jesus. Uh, They seem to have thought that he likely was the Messiah they had been waiting for, And the idea of an eternal kingdom with him ruling over it probably sounded pretty good. I mean, surely Jesus, 
with all of his power and goodness, was on the verge of giving them everything they had longed for. Uh, Surely all the things that they had been putting off and left behind, all the houses and fields and family and friends, all the hardships of the roads that they had endured, going with little for so long. Uh, Surely Jesus seems to be saying it's about to happen. The glitterer and the glory of the kingdom must have felt palpable to him. But then Jesus fills in what he means by accomplishing his mission. And I think it's at that moment that their spiritual sight started to fail. Listen to what he says in verse 32. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. Uh, Jesus describes incredible suffering as a part of what we call the passion of Jesus. Uh, Of all the things that will happen to him when he finally arrives in Jerusalem, oh, at first it will seem as if he is receiving a warm welcome. The crowds will cry, Hosanna in the highest, salvation as Jesus arrives. Uh, But soon they will be whipped into a frenzy. His enemies will lay hold of him and hand him over to those those godless pagans, the Gentiles, the Romans, and set off a series of events that will see him mistreated and mutilated and ultimately murdered on a Roman cross. Uh, Jesus knows this is coming. And in fact, this is the very reason that he came. It is the fulfillment of the prophecies that he has been since the beginning claiming to be fulfilling. All the way back in chapter 4. Uh, Jesus has arrived as the one who would set the captives free, restore the sight to the blind. How would he do that? Uh, That is not a free enterprise. No, it was something that is purchased in blood. So Jesus tells his disciples that before his moment of glory, there will be a moment of suffering. Now, surely this is not what the disciples were expecting. Uh, Jesus had been preparing them for this. He had been telling them. Again, this is the third time he said it explicitly. And yet, frankly, their hearts are not ready to hear it. Their ears were, their spiritual ears were dulled. Their spiritual eyes were clouded. Uh, which is why we're told right after that, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what he said. See, they were expecting a Messiah that would come and conquer and kick out the Romans and put them on top. Instead, Jesus is once again telling them that he's a different sort of king altogether. Uh, One that will suffer and be shamefully treated. One that will give up his very life and allow his enemies to crush him. But that won't be the end of the story, because there's one more detail to what Jesus told them, and that is on the third day, he will rise. Uh, You see, because this king that Jesus is, is one who will for a time seem to be defeated. But in fact, his moment of defeat is the beginning of his moment of victory. Three days after he dies, Jesus will be raised from the dead. And in that moment, he will overcome the devil 
the grave itself, and all of the curse of death for God's people now and forever. This is what Jesus is preparing them for. And yet, even though it's staring them right in the face, the disciples can't see it. Why is that? Now, I'll be honest, uh, I re read this this week, and my heart had the same sort of reaction that I know many Christians have when they see passages like this one, where the disciples just seem unbelievably, almost comically clueless as Jesus says and does things right in front of their face. And I'll admit I entertained a thought. Well, if I had been there, I would have thought differently. I mean, surely, if I had been there and heard those words... I would have understood what he meant. I would have put two and two together. One of the truths that we need to take from this text is a good dose of spiritual humility. And realize just how dependent we are for something theologians call illumination. See, uh, it is impossible for the human soul on its own, to be able to truly apprehend spiritual truth. Uh, there are reasons for that. For one, we have an enemy, the devil, who loves to blind our eyes to the truths that God reveals in his word. So you have someone actively playing defense against you understanding. That's bad enough. But on top of that, our own hearts... Because of the deceptive nature of sin, well, we naturally have clouded spiritual vision. We can see things on the page right in front of us. We can even read them and have a, a sort of intellectual understanding, and yet deep down in the core of us, in our hearts, we could be completely blind to what it says about us and what it says about God. Which is why we need a work that God does through his Holy Spirit called illumination. That is how God turns on the lights on the inside so we can truly hear the things he says in his word and yes, truly begin to understand something about ourselves and something about him. Uh, this is something you never outgrow as a Christian. Uh, whether you are a new believer that's been walking with Christ for just a few weeks or someone who's been walking for him for decades, long past, you are still just as dependent on the Holy Spirit to turn on the lights so that you can truly see the glory of God through his word. I remember sitting with one of our members who's now passed on to glory, uh, Greta White. Uh, Greta was someone who was a serious student of scripture. Uh, for decades, she opened up the Bible, and she wanted to know what it meant. And she wasn't afraid to do the work to find out. She would keep notes. She would do word studies. She would listen to lectures and read books, which meant every time I went to visit her, uh, she always had a set of questions ready for the pastor, who was supposed to have all the answers. Uh, I'm sure I disappointed her many times, but I was always encouraged by how much she wanted to know what God's word really said. But the amazing things about Greta is that as she grew older, in her own words, she grew softer. If you knew Greta, she had a, a pretty direct sort of personality. 
And so early on, she was pretty judgmental towards people that didn't see things in Scripture that seemed plain to her. But one day, the Lord taught her about her need to have the Holy Spirit turn on the lights. And it changed something in her heart. She realized that if not for God having graciously allowed her to understand truly what her word said, she would be utterly spiritually blind. Which meant that she should have grace toward other Christians, even if they didn't understand the things that she had come to understand. One of the implications of this for all of us, I think, is that we should understand our time studying the Bible, whether that's on our own, what we're doing right now, listening to a sermon together, as something that's wholly dependent on God to truly allow us to understand and to see. Uh, do you pray regularly that God would open your eyes to see the wonders that are in his word? Do you pray and ask him to help you when you come on Sunday morning to have a heart that's open to receive what his word has to say to you? Do you ever pray to ask him to reveal, is there something that I've missed, Lord, that your word would correct within me? Do you just humbly ask him, Lord, help me to see better the way I am and the way you are? Uh, brothers and sisters, uh, I'll tell you a secret Preachers covet your prayers for this very reason. Uh, preaching seems like such a foolish enterprise when you think about it just from a social and intellectual uh, standpoint. I mean, what am I really doing? I'm standing up here talking about a book that's thousands of years old and trying to convince you to change your life in the process. But if God is at work opening the eyes of your heart to truly see him through my meager efforts, then preaching, well, preaching is one of the most powerful things we can experience in this world. Uh, my dear brothers and sisters, would you realize how much you need your eyes, even as believers, to be opened to the glory of God on a day-by-day -day basis? Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you may have lots of questions about Christianity. And if so, don't feel bad about that. That's very normal. Uh, maybe it seems very odd to you that we would spend so much time talking about a person we've never physically met in this world. And we read from a book that was written so long ago as if our lives depended on it. Uh, maybe you have questions about how you can know things about God or what the Bible really says or even what it's like to be a Christian. It's okay to have lots of questions. I want you to feel comfortable being here to ask them. But I do need to challenge you with a question this morning. I need to ask you, do you really want to know? Are you curious the way you might be about some sort of attraction in a circus? Just some sort of a fancy that's passing? Or in your heart, at some level, do you really want to know what God's like? If so, let me invite you to just pray a very simple prayer this morning. To pray, God, help me to see. If you dare to pray that prayer, there's no telling what might be opened to your vision. What would happen if you dared to ask God to open the eyes of your heart? Well, that's what our second 
section this morning shows us in verses 35 through 43. The example of a blind man who sees. A blind man who sees. Um, It's a terrible thing to be without physical sight. And yet, having physical sight is not the most important thing in this world. Helen Keller, famously blind, was asked if it was an awful thing to go through life without sight. And she was quoted as saying, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. I think Helen saw very clearly the truth that this passage shows us by way of contrast. Uh, First, Luke went out of his way to show us the disciples who, though they have Jesus right in front of them, can't see the spiritual truth right in front of their faces, which is completely in contrast to the next man, that is, a man without physical sight who has incredible spiritual vision. We're told that Jesus and the disciples are drawing near to Jericho. That puts them one day out from Jerusalem. Uh, Jericho was the town where the priests would find their Airbnbs as they waited to be invited to come and do their priestly duties in the Temple Mount. Um, And that meant it needed to be one day away from Jerusalem and no further. Well, Jesus and his disciples, as they're approaching, they come across a remarkable man. Read with me in verse 35. A blind man was seated by the roadside begging And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. There is a blind man sitting by the side of the road turns out is more than meets the eye. Uh, There's some very commendable qualities about a man that no one would have thought much of. Undoubtedly, as a blind man, he would have been wholly dependent on others to help him go to and from his spot for begging. Uh, We're told that he is begging, and that shows us he does not have means to feed himself, likely to clothe himself, which meant he would have been the most pitiable and poor, the most Uh, the most in need of mercy of anyone that you would come across in a given day. But for all of the things going against him, he has one thing going for him. He is spiritually perceptive. Uh, He senses uh, some sort of commotion as the crowd with Jesus and his disciples are passing by. And somehow, God made clear to him that this was an important moment. So he asked questions. Well, what's this ruckus? Someone tells him, uh, Jesus of Nazareth is here. That preacher from out of the sticks that everyone's talking about, he's here. Well, that becomes the occasion for this man showing us what he knows about himself, and more importantly, what he knows about Jesus. First, we see what he knows about himself. He knows that he is in great need. Because he repeatedly calls out for Jesus to show him mercy. You don't cry out for someone to help you unless there's something that you need help with. And this man certainly understood his physical need. We'll see that in his talk with Jesus. Uh, 
But I think we're supposed to understand even further than that by way of him asking for mercy that he understood something of the need of his soul, that he was a sinner in need of something that only Jesus could provide. And so he cried out, Jesus, show me mercy. But second, we see what he knows about Jesus. He knows about Jesus that he is someone who is fully capable of helping him because he has the authority of the very king of the people of God that's long been prophesied. Now, notice he calls out to Jesus as son of David. That's a royal title. Uh, expectation in those days was that the Messiah, when he came, would be the descendant of David, which meant he would be the true heir of the throne of Israel. Somehow, this blind beggar had enough spiritual sight to see this truth about Jesus. He is truly David's son. He is the king that is destined to sit upon the throne of God forever. And by implication, that means that he has an authority, even to open the eyes of the blind. One other quality we see of this remarkable blind man is his persistence. Uh, did you notice how the crowds tried to shut him up? <laughs> they said, they rebuked him. They, they told him to be quiet. Uh, People would have undoubtedly thought of a noisy beggar as a nuisance, someone that the popular preacher shouldn't waste his time with. Uh, but he would not be denied. He would not be silenced. He proclaimed all the louder, Jesus, come show mercy to me. And as a result, we see this encounter. He, Jesus stops in verse 40, commands him to come near to him. And then he asks him a question. What? do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. I don't think Jesus asked that question because he didn't know what the man wanted. No, I think he did it so that this man would have an occasion for his faith to rise up, for him to be able to ask boldly something of Jesus. Uh, I think he fits very much the mold of that persistent widow in the parable a few Sundays ago, who very boldly and persistently asked God for what she needs. He asked Jesus, let me recover my sight. And then it happens. Uh, Luke describes it very succinctly. Jesus said, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Uh, what must that moment have been like? When those eyes that were cloudy and seeing nothing suddenly saw blue skies and white clouds, maybe some green trees. Uh, what must it have been like when suddenly his mind's eye was no longer imagining the world around him, but with healthy windows to his soul. He was taking it all in. But most of all, what must it have been like for the first person that he saw to be the very man who healed him 
for him to have looked into the face of Jesus himself. Undoubtedly, what he saw captured his heart. Because we're told that immediately afterward, he started following Jesus as one of his disciples. And as one of the commentators I was reading this week points out, that meant he likely saw all the things that happened in Jerusalem, which means he got an eyeful in short order. And yet, what was it that he saw in that moment and thereafter? I submit to you, it's nothing less than the very glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What we see from this example here is how it is that Jesus can open the eyes of our hearts so we can truly see that which our souls long the most for, to see the very glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There are three lessons that I think this passage is meant to show us. First, the blinding nature of sin. Uh, Jesus' parables always have a, a message underneath them. When he heals a man who is unable to walk, it shows us of our inability. When he heals someone with leprosy, it shows us of how our souls are corrupted by our sins. Well, here, his healing of a blind man shows us of how sin so easily blinds our souls. And yet, through faith in Jesus how he can truly give us spiritual sight. Now, this is one of the most tragic natures of a sinful heart. Each and every one of us has it. Some level or the other, whether we've lived with it, dominating our spiritual sight our whole lives, or whether we've had a, a partial healing from Jesus as we've come to faith in him, one way or the other, sin still has the ability to keep us from truly seeing ourselves and truly seeing God. Have you ever noticed how when someone finds their way into some sort of sin, very often how they're the last one to know that they're the one in the wrong? Maybe you've had that experience for yourself. Maybe you had been short with your temper Someone pointed it out to you, and you were angry that they did so, because it's ridiculous. You would never be short with your temper, not realizing that in that moment you were illustrating their point. Or maybe you had been toying around with the sin for some time, to the point where you stopped seeing just how dangerous it was, until all at once, like an avalanche, the consequences of it came upon you. And in that moment of horrible realization, you realize this whole time, You've been acting like a blind person, stumbling their way into disaster. See, that's the nature of sin. It blinds our inner heart. It prevents us from seeing things as they are, both in ourselves and how we relate to God. Uh, which is why it's so important for us regularly to have that spiritual sight cleared by bringing our sins to God through confession and repentance. Uh, I'll just point out that this is one area where having good Christian friends or a good Christian spouse, if God has blessed you in such a way, is such an asset. Uh, because if you give them permission to point out where your spiritual blind spots are, it's much easier to notice them and to quickly repent, to come to Jesus and ask him, Lord, help me recover my sight. 
Help me to see my life the way it really is, not the way I want to pretend it is. One of the things I think this should teach us, though, is to be very, very careful when it comes to how we think of the sins we are aware of. Uh, None of us knows when the lights will be turned off. But sooner or later, any sin that is pursued far enough leads to not a place of light, but of to outer darkness. So brothers and sisters, when you notice your sins, quickly bring them to Jesus. Persistently ask him to give you mercy, knowing that he longs to clear your spiritual eyes and allow you to see clearly again. The second lesson we are to learn from this is how it is that someone is saved. And that's only by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus tells the man that his faith has healed him. Now, it would be wrong to think that that means that faith is something that we do in and of ourselves that saves us or heals us or somehow makes us right before God. No, don't think of faith that way. Think of it instead as the channel. Uh, Think of it like open hands that receive a gift from someone else. A faith is required for your soul to be able to see. And yet faith itself is just the instrument. It's just a thing Jesus promises to use. Well, how is it that someone has faith in Jesus? What, what is that actually, uh, what is that actually uh, made up of? Well, four things. Uh, first, knowing yourself. It's knowing that you are a sinner in need of a savior. Second, knowing him. Knowing that Jesus is that Savior who died on a cross to give his life in exchange for sinners like yours. And rose from the dead so that sinners can be forgiven. Third, it requires belief. Uh, That is, you actually have to believe those things are true and have a sort of mental decision to to ask Jesus to forgive you. But that mental decision isn't enough because there's one more thing that goes with it, and that is trust. Uh, That is to throw yourself upon the mercy of Jesus, to rely fully on him, to provide that which you could never provide for yourself. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, according to the Bible, this is more than anything what you need to do to be right with before God. Uh, The Bible teaches that none of us can ever live a good enough life to be saved from our sins. You can't outwork your bad works by having more good works. Um, According to God, your sins need to be paid for by a sacrifice of blood. Uh, That's what Jesus, going to Jerusalem, was all about. Uh, Jesus went and gave up his life willingly as a substitutionary sacrifice. Uh, That's him putting himself in the place of all types of sinners. And when Jesus died on the cross, in that moment... The full penalty was paid because our sins had been placed on Jesus. And that means if you trust him to save you, there will never be a single sin that one day God will punish you for. And the best news of all is three days after Jesus died, he came back to life so that you could know for sure that you can be saved and that you can actually have a living and loving relationship with God that starts now and goes forever. All that Jesus requires of you is to to know your need of him, 
and to ask him, to plead with him, Lord, save me. Show mercy to me. There has not been a single sinner that has ever thrown themselves upon the mercy of Jesus Christ that's found themselves disappointed. Because Jesus, he allows a soul to be saved. And he grants us to be able to see when we come to him through saving faith. Our friend, if you have questions about that after the service, uh, I'll be right up front. Uh, love to talk with you. I'd even love to be able to lead you in prayer this morning, asking Jesus to reveal himself to you so you could trust him by faith. I think the final lesson that we should all take from this this morning is the glory of seeing and learning to revel in it. If you are a Christian, uh, if you have truly come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, then this work has already happened within you. You have had your spiritual eyes opened, and you have begun to see glimpses of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know moments when this happens. They're unmistakable. Uh, moments of prayer that are more sweet than anything in this world has any right to be. Moments in corporate worship where it feels like we are standing in the midst of the great heavenly assembly with the angels singing praises to God. Or moments where the Holy Spirit ministers to you on the inside and comforts you with the comfort that only God can provide. And in that moment, you know something of the glory of God. You've come to know it in the face of Jesus Christ. And yet there's a real sense where each and every one of us are still only seeing partially. Uh, those moments are far more fleeting than we would like, aren't they? And they're mixed with all sorts of distractions. We have the enemy still playing defense against us, seeing, and even our own hearts and our sins does everything we can to turn our attention away from Jesus and the glory of God and toward the things of this earth. And yet, there is a day coming for each of us when we will have our souls seeing 2020, when the eyes of our heart will be perfectly clear, and we will see the most beautiful sight of all. On the day when this earthly life is over, and our pilgrimage down that road with so many dangers, toils, and snares is a thing of the past. Uh, on the day when our suffering and sorrows no longer burden us. And we find ourselves coming face to face with the most beautiful one of all. Jesus himself. On that day, your soul will see perfectly. And what it sees will be beautiful. There's a woman greatly esteemed in the courts of heaven, a sister named Fanny Crosby. From a very early age, she lost her physical sight. A quack doctor gave her medicine that robbed her of her ability to see. And yet she used that trial and suffering well to foster spiritual sight. She read God's word and she wrote beautiful hymns. Hymns we still sing today, like Blessed Assurance. Uh, many of the texts and 
poems and hymns of the faith come from this blind woman. Someone asked her, Fanny, do you wish that you could see? I love the way she responded. Because her hope was not in seeing with physical eyes, but that her soul would one day see Jesus in his beautiful glory. She said, if I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind. For when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior, Jesus. What must that moment have been like for her? What might it be like for you? What might be the words that unprompted come out of your mouth? Maybe something like, I always knew you were beautiful. The soul that has faith in Jesus will truly see. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we confess that we were blinded by our sin. We had no ears to hear your voice. Thank you for your spirit coming and bringing us life, for opening up your word so that we can truly see. Uh, Jesus, would you help us to turn our eyes away from all the things that would cloud our spiritual vision? The cares of this world and the temptations of the devil and even the sins of our own soul. Uh, help us to focus on your face in that beautiful glory that one day we will see with 2020 vision. Thank you, Jesus. We long to see you, our beautiful Savior. We pray in your name. Amen.